Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we take a look at how the entire political system has lurched to the right on immigration as Democrats adopt the talking points of the Republicans and the MAGA Republicans put Trump's election chances over the policies they claim to support. Sources today include The Readout, The Majority Report, The Damage Report, Today Explained, The Brian Lehrer Show, All In With Chris Hayes, and Deconstructed with additional members-only clips from Amicus and Deconstructed. We begin tonight with an emergency, a crisis, a catastrophe. At least that's what Republican lawmakers have spent the last few months calling the situation at the southern border. One thing is absolutely clear. America is at a breaking point with record levels of illegal immigration. It is an unmitigated disaster, a catastrophe. And what's more tragic is that it's a disaster of the president's own design. The border crisis, which is the top issue across the country. The numbers do not lie. Our country is being invaded right now, right in front of our very eyes, because of Joe Biden's catastrophic border policies. We cannot allow this border crisis to continue. We cannot allow fentanyl to flood across our border, our criminals to waltz in undeterred. This is very clearly an invasion. It is a purposeful one, and it's inflicting dangerous consequences on our country and the people of Texas. Wow. Well, given such alarmist rhetoric, You'd think that these lawmakers would want to act immediately to get this catastrophe under control, right? Well, as of yesterday, they actually had the chance to do that. After months of talk, Senate negotiators finally released a sweeping bipartisan border security deal. The proposed bill would raise the standard to grant asylum, send away those who don't qualify, and expedite cases for those who do. It would also give the president new authority to effectively shut down the border to migrants when attempted crossings are high and end the practice of catch and release, while also providing billions of dollars in funding for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, as well as humanitarian assistance for civilians in Gaza. But just hours after the bill was released, leading Republicans in the House said, nope, we don't want it. Almost immediately, House Speaker Mike Johnson, along with Steve Scalise and Elise Stefanik, took to social media to throw cold water on any hopes of even debating the bill. And earlier today, they released a statement putting the final nail in the coffin, writing that any consideration of this Senate bill in its current form is a waste of time. It's dead on arrival in the House. We encourage the Senate to reject it. Instead, the Speaker is proposing a standalone bill providing aid to Israel, completely cutting out the border and aid to Ukraine. So let's just be very clear. The same people who are going on and on and going on these trips to the border to stir up outrage and yell about an immigration crisis were handed the opportunity to help fix the issue on a silver platter, a bill that was negotiated by conservative Republican Senator James Lankford. And this is not some liberal wish list. It's actually the most conservative and aggressive border bill that we've seen in decades. The Democrats and President Biden were willing to bite their tongues and support, despite the fact that it offers no path to citizenship and doesn't even address the dreamers. A bill that the Border Patrol Union, which has been very critical of President Biden, even they endorse it, saying, quote, while not perfect, it is a step in the right direction and is far better than the current status quo. And MAGA Republicans say, nah, we're good. Make it make sense. Because right now, even Senator Langford is calling his party out on their foolishness. 
Are we as Republicans going to have press conferences and complain the border's bad and then intentionally leave it open? Are we going to just complain about things or are we going to actually address and to change as many things as we can? If we have the shot, and it's amazing to me, if, if I go back two months ago and say we had the shot under a Democrat president to dramatically increase detention beds, deportation flights, lock down the border to be able to change the asylum laws, right. to be able to accelerate the process, no one would have believed it. And now no one actually wants to be able to fix it. But the Republicans' refusal to even consider this bill makes a lot more sense when you see the reaction of the guy who, let's just be real, is calling all the shots here, Donald Trump. Posting on his fake Twitter site, he declared that the ridiculous border bill is nothing more than a highly sophisticated trap for Republicans to assume the blame on what the radical left Democrats have done to our border just in time for our most important election. Don't fall for it. Lots of exclamation points. Never mind the fact that when Trump actually was the president, he never passed a single immigration bill, even when his party controlled the House and the Senate. He never even closed the border, which he keeps saying needs to be closed. But I guess facts don't matter to these people. The only thing that does matter is getting Donald Trump elected. I've said it before and I'll say it again. They don't want a solution. They want the chaos because they'd rather run on the problem than give Joe Biden a win in an election year on what voters say is one of the most important issues to them. I don't think the Democrats would have done this were it not for uh, Biden pushing it. And we'll hear him say that in a moment. Basically want to provide at least part of that authority to the president, in addition to setting up a system which greatly um, makes it even harder for asylum seekers and immigrants uh, in this country. Again, we went through this yesterday. You can be in this country for over a decade legally in with legal documents and um working papers still not have the opportunity for citizenship this is just about ultimately preventing non-white people from coming in first of all the majority of undocumented people in this country have overstayed their visas they came in, they had documents, they overstayed. The majority of people coming in through the border now are apparently Chinese. I'm talking the southern border. Um, on one hand, we talk about how oppressive uh, the chai are. On the other hand, we're like, well, but we don't care about any of the people there. Who are they oppressive to? Yeah. Well, Who are they impressive to? Exactly. I mean, but <laughs> the, the, there's a few things like those two clips would have made so much more sense, especially the Chip Roy one, if this was literally Trump in office proposing this bill. Like the way that they're talking about we need this executive like or the, the executive authority here. It's like unitary executive theory, but for the border that um, would allow for like the federal for, for the White House, essentially for the presidency to have this emergency authority. And it, you can activate it on a discretionary basis and say like, eh, no, 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 we're, we're, we're going to override international law and asylum and then also domestic law and asylum because I've decided to. And so like Biden proposes this is in favor of this. What happens when the Republican gets in office? They don't care about that because 
I don't know, Biden ideologically doesn't care, but also wanted to make this point for 12 Morning Joe viewers that the Republicans are unreasonable and can't make a deal. But now this is where the center of the conversation is, to your point, which is really scary, really, really scary. This bill was as far right as you can get in terms of like a bipartisan uh, uh, effort to address immigration there. And when you're saying like they don't want white pe- non-white people in this country that is true and that's what motivates the base of the republican party but for a lot of republican party big money donors and supporters and for republican politicians with deep pockets what they also want is to create an underclass, a, of, an workers. underclass of workers who are terrified and have this hanging over a deportation hanging over their head so they can take lower wages work in horrible conditions and be silent but working and really uh uh Without any type of yeah, uh, without any protection. Uh, protection. It's interesting. Yeah, Chris Murphy was going around talking about, oh, we look at how uh, the Republicans won't even meet us uh, when we say we want to do what to do. It's interesting that Chris Murphy and the Senate and all these people can get together on bipartisan uh, coups when it comes to places like Venezuela or whatever, but they can't get together on actually like dealing with the fallout of our policies well, like that. I mean, let's be clear here. This initial push for border legislation was a sweetener to get the supplemental um, uh, funding for Ukraine and then Israel uh, passed. That's the way this was offered. And now the Biden administration has made it the primary focus of this legislation. They have moved the Democratic position on, um, on comprehensive immigration reform from a place where We'll give you more border patrol agents if you give us a path to citizenship and provide citizenship for people like the Dreamers. That was where the position was then. And now it's just we're racing to see who can put more um, uh, money into the border. Here is Joe Biden yesterday, and it is him admitting this is what he's saying. This is what the subtext of this entire exercise is. The Republicans are right. We're being invaded. This is a crisis. I just don't have the tools to do it. And now I can't convince the Republicans to do it. Well, what is the average American to make of that? Weak. Well, A, weak. And B, like, who's the guy who's going to solve this massive invasion crisis? Because I've only got two choices. It's either this guy who can't do anything about it. Exactly. Here he is. For much too long, as you all know, the immigration system has been broken. And it's long past time to fix it. That's why months ago I instructed my team to begin negotiations with a bipartisan group of senators to seriously and finally fix our immigration system. For months now, that's what they've done. Working around the clock, through the holidays, over the weekends, it's been an extraordinary effort by Senators Langford, Murphy, and Sinema. The result of all this hard work is a bipartisan agreement that represents the most fair, humane reforms in our immigration system in a long time, and the toughest set of reforms to secure the border ever. Now, all indications are this bill won't even move forward to the Senate floor. Why? A simple reason. Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically. Therefore, he doesn't even know it helps the, the, the country. He's not for it. He'd rather weaponize this issue than actually solve it. So for the last 24 hours.
hours, he's done nothing, I'm told, but reach out to Republicans in the House and the Senate and threaten them and try to intimidate them to vote against this proposal. And it looks like they're caving. Frankly, they owe it to the American people to show some spine and do what they know to uh, be right. Let's, I can't even watch this anymore. <laughs> You're not energized by that? Aside from me not being energized, I mean, listen to what he's saying. My opponent in this race is all-powerful. and has right the now. ability to govern as non-president. And you can't even say, like, you don't want him to be president because if he's president, he's going to push this exact same bill. He wants this bill. The, the legislature wants the bill, but he doesn't want it to happen until he gets into office. And now the bill is not going to happen. So the American public is supposed to go like, oh, well, I'm going to punish him for being so powerful for playing politics. and keep you in office, yeah. even though Not you won't be able to solve the problem that you are now telling us is so urgent that it has to be solved now. Well, in, in 11 months and 12 months, it's going to be that much more urgent. So I want the guy who's just going to come in and be able to do it, who has control of these people. Like, none of this makes sense. None of this makes sense. No, we're not going to just pass the buck and say that, oh, any president could walk in and secure the border. I saw former President Trump make that allegation earlier today on one of his social media posts. All the president has to do is declare the borders closed and it's closed. Well, with all due respect, that didn't happen in 2017, 18, 19, and 20. There were millions of people who came into the United States during those four years. So where's the lie exactly in that? Now, look, I don't know exactly what his long-term goal is in that. He could be attempting to continue to demonize the fact that, look, even under a Republican, tons of these immigrants came in. But he is right. They, they claim you can just shut it down. Biden doesn't need this bill. He can just do it anyway by enforcing the law or snapping his fingers, and then we're done. So, so we don't need to do a bill. We don't need Donald Trump to be mad at us. That's just a lie. And I, I would love to see Donald Trump answer why, if you can just shut down the border, he never did. If you can just do that, if it's that easy, just snap your fingers, you're done. Why is it that so many people crossed the border under Donald Trump? There's, of course, no answer to that. So they will do what they always do when faced with reality. They will completely ignore it. They will tuck tail and run. They will just hide behind their convenient lies. And there are so many in this topic. There are lies about the 5,000 migrants a day threshold. The lies of, look, we're not going to relitigate all of it. We've been going over for a solid two weeks at this point. But they're massive liars. And I love that you have at least one Republican who's willing to admit it from time to time. Sharon, what are your thoughts? Yeah, the band is is breaking up here. Okay, they don't even need Yoko. The band is breaking up. These defections, all this little stuff. There, there's infighting. And speaking of, if Petty was a person, George Santos is <laughs> missing mm. yet. Okay, it's a it's a beautiful thing to see when people who do nothing but lie and orchestrate and beyond normal politics are now caught up and in a family feud. It's a beautiful thing to see, except, oh, yeah, what about running the country? What about the rest of us? Yeah, yeah. It's just, eh, look, and I'll admit, this is my closing thought. Uh, I am delighting this. I love to see them fail to do things that they never should have tried to do in the first place. 
But I will also remind you, there is an opportunity cost to all of this, and it's the functioning of Congress. Like, yeah, they're failing to do stupid stuff. But they're not doing anything else. This is what they're doing. They name a post office, they fail to impeach someone. They name another post office, they talk about impeaching Joe Biden. That's literally it. And the thing is, people do need help. They don't just need antics. about places along the U.S.-Mexico border where there are floods of people coming through. But I'll admit, Eagle Pass is not a city that I had heard much about until recently. Is this a place where you have um, huge numbers of migrants typically? Historically, uh, no, this is not a place where, where people cross. But this part of the river that is bordering Coahuila State, which is reportedly one of the more safer states in Mexico to cross, has become a huge crossing point. And Eagle Pass because in part, you know, the, the river is pretty wide and shallow in right by Shelby Park has become a staging area for the processing of thousands of migrants, unprecedented numbers of people crossing at the same time. It's not unusual to hear local officials talking about having watched a thousand people like a sort of wave of humanity just, you know, cross the river together. One day last week, they had in a single day 4,000 people cross illegally into Eagle Pass. 4,000 people in a town of 28,000 people. That's about 14 percent of the city's population. In Eagle Pass, you have two groups that are claiming responsibility for securing the border, so to speak. You've got the Border Patrol, which is a federal force, and then you have the Texas National Guard. How do those two groups normally interact in Eagle Pass? Whose job is it to oversee migration? In the beginning aughts of Operation Lone Star, which is this border crackdown uh, that Governor Abbott has undertaken since 2021, they actually worked together ah. uh, pretty well. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. I mean, most people who do any kind of border law enforcement work together quite intimately. And so you had both of these agencies there keeping a lookout, whereas Border Patrol are the only ones who actually have the jurisdiction and the immigration enforcement powers to detain people, to screen them for any number of immigration-related uh, processes, and to take them into custody at their soft-sided facility. Uh, National Guard can't put their hands on migrants unless they're, you know, trying to help or, or save them. And we had that tragic incident of that one National Guardsman who actually drowned after trying to help a couple of migrants. But yeah, no, this is sort of a no fuss kind of thing. You know, Border Patrol would welcome more boots on the ground. They're chronically asking for more help. You know, while Border Patrol is processing folks and running them through these screening processes, they're not watching the river. And so they would have, they welcomed National Guard watching the river and keeping an eye out. Now they're at odds because their leaders are at odds. Since 2021, Governor Abbott has been beating this drum, saying that the federal government is essentially abandoning its duty to protect Texas's borders. The Biden administration's open border policies have created an open season for human traffickers, for drug smugglers, for cartels and gangs. Because the federal government is failing to act to respond to these dangers, Texas is stepping up to secure the border and to keep our communities safe. So it started with, you know, sending state troopers down to the border. It started with sending National Guardsmen. This is necessary because 
More than 45,000 people have been apprehended crossing our border in just the last three weeks. It's building state border wall. It was busing migrants from the NGOs to other cities across the country. Before we begin busing illegal immigrants up to New York, it was just Texas and Arizona that bore the brunt of all of the chaos and all the problems that come with it. Now the rest of America is understanding exactly what is going on. And then it was arresting migrants accused of trespassing. You need landowners to sign on to that. So they were getting permissions from various landowners, riverfront property landowners, to be able to arrest people and run them through a sort of specially created justice system. And so Abbott, little by little, has been like taking bites out of this apple until we get to this point where, you know, Shelby Park is a municipal park, and they decided that, you know, the fact that Border Patrol was using this park as a staging area that was allowing thousands of people into the country, uh, at least from their point of view, that they needed to shut that down. So uh, Texas has uh, the legal authority uh, to, to control ingress and egress into any geographic location in the state of Texas. Uh, and that authority is being asserted uh, with regard to that park in Eagle Pass, Texas, uh, to maintain operational control of it. And basically, the Biden administration asked the Supreme Court to intervene because of a confrontation that happened. We're still like mulling through the details, but essentially that National Guard kept Border Patrol from entering the park in a moment of what they considered a medical emergency, that there were migrants that were in distress. Now, if you ask you know, Texas National Guard and, and Texas state troopers, they'll tell you that those, those people had already drowned. But it's the fact that Border Patrol couldn't go in when they wanted to and have access to the border that pushed the Biden administration to say, hey, SCOTUS, like this can't be happening. This is an enumerated power in the Constitution that we have. Texas has no leg to stand on here. Tonight, a narrowly divided Supreme Court delivering a victory for the Biden administration, clearing the Can way we talk a bit about how Abbott is framing this for his constituents, for the people of Texas? What, what is he saying when the Supreme Court says, hey, buddy, you, you got to step aside? Well, he invoked the Constitution that Texas has a right to defend itself and that this constitutes the tide of humanity that's coming across the border constitutes an invasion. Uh, Because Joe Biden has completely abdicated and abandoned his responsibility to enforce the laws of the United States. I have used a clause in the Constitution that empowers states to defend themselves. It's Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3. It's the kind of rhetoric that has been used by extremists throughout all of this. And so, you know, Abbott is saying, look, Texas is going to do whatever it can to defend itself against what it fears is an invasion. And a lot of people in this state agree with him. While they might not agree specifically with his methods, the numbers are such and the images are such that, you know, it provokes concern whether you're a Republican, Democrat, whether you're progressive or uh, a conservative, uh, sort of across the spectrum. Where does this leave us? Where does this stand right now? We're waiting on the courts to help us figure out, you know, who's actually in charge here and who has authorities, as enumerated by the Constitution, to continue to operate on the border. 
We have this border deal that came through over the weekend that Republican leaders are saying is dead on arrival. So we're just kind of in stasis the way that the border has been in stasis now for almost four decades. I mean, migration has changed. The hemisphere is on the move. And it's not just folks from Central and South America. It's folks from all over the world. So the question is, how much work is the United States willing to put into working with Latin America to try and stanch some of these flows, which it already has. In conversations with Mexico has gotten a lot more aggressive with migrants, and that's why you see the levels plummeting the way they have in January in terms of crossings. But, you know, we're also entering the spring and then the summer when migration traditionally and historically has continued to increase. It's just a matter of waiting to see what happens in the courts, what happens in Congress, and what the United States is able to do with its partners in Latin America. This has been ongoing for uh, about a year now, really ever since Republicans took back the House majority um, in the 117th Congress, when you just all heard um, those vows from people like Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and others who, even before in any sort of impeachment investigation or proceedings began, uh, promised voters that they were going to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas. Um, the main players uh, that we're seeing lead this charge forward and, and finally execute this impeachment right now is the um, chairman of the Committee on Homeland Security, Congressman Mark Green of Tennessee, um, who is leading the committee and this week introduced two articles of impeachment uh, against Alejandro Mayorkas, um, one a betrayal of, of public trust and the other really boils down to uh, the allegation that he's broken the law by refusing to enforce immigration statutes that would prevent migrants from from entering the United States. Obviously, right now, um, there have been record numbers of migrants that have been crossing the border. But the issue um, at play here is, is essentially that what Green is charging Mayorkas for does not actually arise to high crimes and misdemeanors. And ultimately, the migrant crisis, the migrant crisis won't be addressed by impeachment at all. And, and rather, uh, the proceedings and negotiations taking place in the upper chamber with regards to the border deal that's being negotiated on a bipartisan basis by lawmakers is what could address that crisis. Mm. So we're sort of seeing a split screen in Congress right now. Absolutely. Jacqueline, you started to get into this, and we know that the issues at the U.S.-Mexico border are the backdrop for this hearing with a record record number of migrants entering the country. We even heard President Biden say this recently, that if a bipartisan immigration deal was passed, he would do this. But also give me as president the emergency authority to shut down the border until it could get back under control. If that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. Why do we hear this new hard line from President Biden, and how does it connect to the hearing that happened this week? Yeah, I think that there's sort of a twofold reason. There's obviously a political calculus here. This is something that Biden has not gotten very good reviews on as border crossings has caused a major strain to federal, state, and local governments and, and resources. Um, it has become a very overheated conversation on the right and that has further been inflamed by uh, you know, the uh, essentially de facto nominee of the Republican Party for the 2024 election, President Trump, former President Trump, um, and House Republicans who have mimicked 
his language. And so you've seen the Biden administration finally try to address this head on and get ahead of um, some of the, the messaging battles that they've previously been losing. And and but secondly, this deal actually does address a lot of the policy issues that have been under discussion, um, policy issues that actually, uh, you know, Republican lawmakers have been saying and, and clamoring for Congress to address for years now. Um, one of my colleagues has a really good layout of, of all of the things that Republican lawmakers have said over the past few years about what needs to happen on the border um, that just a, a few years ago, you know, Trump had wanted Congress to work on changing asylum laws um, uh, and, and basically taking legislative action. And now you've seen, um, you know, in this election cycle, as we get closer to November, people like House Speaker Mike Johnson, people like Senator Ted Cruz, who obviously represents uh, a border state, um, claim now that 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 Congress isn't needed to address the, the crisis at the border and that actually the president has enough powers to do this himself. So really a, a, a 180 on what they were previously arguing about. But how this this all relates to the hearing this week is that, you know, as they have been as the House has been trying to impeach Mayorkas and blame him for what a lot of people, constitutional experts, even Republican constitutional scholars have argued amounts to a policy difference, um, which they have claimed is an, is an impeachable offense. The upper chamber has been working on addressing these policy differences. And it's sort of been hard to reconcile, uh, as you can imagine, someone, um, you know, in, in one chamber, Alejandro Mayorkas being uh, criticized as um, you know, the, the cause of the surge at the border, while in the other chamber, he's been someone who's been integral to the negotiations taking place between lawmakers for months now, you know, over the, the Christmas break during recess, he was spotted um, back and forth on the Hill, sitting mm. in the room and, and trying to get this deal past the stalemate and, and uh, finalized. And certainly the membership of the Homeland Security Committee includes Congressmember Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, she was also referenced in Benny uh, Congressman Thompson's opening remarks as someone who has uh, made this an issue since the start of this Congress and has also potentially fundraised off this issue and may also be uh, angling for a, a political future in 2024. What is your reaction to, to that piece of this equation? Yeah, well, at the end of the day, it's it's not just Marjorie Taylor Greene in the House GOP conference that wants to impeach Mayorkas. They're, uh, overall, the House is dramatically more conservative than the Senate, and there uh, is sort of this growing unanimous consent amongst Republican members that impeaching Mayorkas um, is the pol most politically expedient thing to do for them, especially with such a slim majority where it's really hard to push things through legislatively, this is kind of a welcome distraction, something that uh, even vulnerable members are in agreement about, especially as base voters have been clamoring for accountability. Um, oversight is obviously a big responsibility for a majority um, in any Congress. And, and this would be the first promise that I think lawmakers have made to constituents about impeachments that have been going on for several years now that would actually be um, executed. It's highly unlikely that the Senate would ultimately vote to impeach Mayorkas. You've heard 
Republican senators say that they're not in favor of it, that that they feel like the House needs to get a grip and, and actually get something done legislatively. Um, but but there is some agreement that this is good politics, especially as you have people like Donald Trump explicitly saying that at the end of the day, the House should not give President Biden a win on the border and not to pass this bill. And Jacqueline, just to underscore this, and I know you, you you've said it already, but what are the specific crimes Republicans are accusing Mayorkas of? What makes up these two articles of impeachment? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. And it's definitely under debate right now. They have charged that Mayorkas was lying under oath about the state of the border. This is under the charge of the betrayal of the public trust. This is surrounds this term that he used when he testified before Congress in 2022, when he said that um, the Department of Homeland Security had, quote, operational control. Hmm. The definition of this um, according to Mayorkas, as employed by the Border Patrol, is the ability to detect, respond, um, and, and, and intercede border penetrations in areas deemed as high priority. But there was a 2006 law that was called the Secure Fence Act, and that defines the term a bit differently as the absence of any unlawful crossings or my, of migrants or drugs. So they've tried to nail Mayorkas on that. They've also said that he has been obstructing their investigation. Um, they listed, you know, 31 different requests that have been partially or completely unsatisfied by Homeland Security. But Mayorkas, as the department has noted, has actually been one of the most cooperative cabinet members appearing before Congress dozens of times. Um, the the primary charge, though, is is that he's broken the law by refusing to enforce immigration statutes. Um, but, uh, and, and this means that he's failed to uphold certain aspects of immigration law, which mm. they believe is, is a constitutional crime. Um, but, you know, policy experts and again, constitutional scholars and past secretaries of Homeland Security, and even, you know, there have been some former legal advisors to President Trump, former President Trump, who noted, um, that, that they do not agree with this assessment of it rising to high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, as laid out by the Constitution, and that at the end of the day, the and a presidential administration does have wide latitude in how to control the border, and that there's there they do not feel like Mayorkas has exceeded those authorities that have been given to the executive branch. You cannot overstate how much vile demagoguery about migrants constantly appears on Fox News day in, day out. This is a government jobs program that lets in more migrants. Not to mention how much we're paying for the migrants' kids to go to school. But now the migrants are shutting down the hospitals in Denver more than COVID ever did. We shouldn't be allowing even one migrant into the country. Isn't this really an attempt, ultimately, to destroy the country internally? That's exactly what it is. It's poisonous stuff, and Fox News executives don't seem to care if what they're saying is true, as quite famously demonstrated when they paid out a nine-figure settlement to Dominion voting machines, and when they defended a now-former primetime host from a slander lawsuit by just telling the court his Fox News show did not really do news, so he couldn't be guilty of defamation. Which brings us to what happened the other night. Fox News host Sean Hannity tried to get some synergy with another brand you might remember from the 80s, 
the Guardian Angels and their vigilante founder, Curtis Sliwa. Do you remember him? His gang was going to make the streets safe for regular people by rooting out criminals, as he told the Today Show back in 1982. Because the criminal is very violent and operates in what we call the wolf packs. You see them by the way they dress, their style, almost like modern day pirates. And that's what keeps you in fear. Once they've smelled fear from you, once they've seen you change your path of entry or to cross the street from where they're hanging out, they descend upon you like wolves. Oh, my God, like a time warp to my childhood in the Bronx. Fast forward to Tuesday night when uh, Hannity interviewed Curtis Lewa live in Times Square, about 40 years older, back in his costume like the Kiss reunion tour, talking about the hellscape that is New York under the migrant invasion. And they had a remarkable Fox TV moment. If you divide 53 million by 500, that's a $106,000 debit card. Not a bad deal. I don't think they're giving them to, to, to vets that are homeless in New York City. Not that I've heard, Curtis. Well, in fact, our guys have just taken down one of the migrant guys right here on the corner, 42nd and 7th, while all can, this is Can you is pan taken. the camera? They've taken over. They've taken over. You'd like the camera over there if at all possible. He is out of control. Out of control. They have been shoplifting first. The Guardian Angels spotted them, stopped them. He resisted. And let's just say we gave him a little pain compliance. His mother back in Venezuela felt the vibrations. He's sucking concrete. <laughs> what a despicable, despicable exhibition. So Sliwa says the man they were assaulting was a migrant shoplifter, the one that was sucking concrete. A perfect story for the that Donald Trump and Fox News are telling their audience about the illegals and the rampant crime. Except guess what? After the cameras turned off, a little more reporting and digging revealed that the man Sliwa's gang wrestled down was not a migrant, but drumroll, a New Yorker from the Bronx. And while Sliwa claimed he was a shoplifter, there was no evidence of that, and he was not charged with shoplifting by the police. He was issued a disorderly conduct summons, apparently for being disruptive during Curtis's live shot. In other words, a New Yorker in the middle of Times Square was interrupting a live shot of Curtis Sliwa, and his goons assaulted him. Yesterday, Fox once again had to do some cleanup to avoid another lawsuit. Now, Curtis said that the man was a migrant and that he was shoplifting. Fox News has since spoken to the NYPD. Apparently, the statements made by Curtis that the man is a migrant is not true. Curtis said, in part, quote, I shouldn't have been listening to the crowd. That was my mistake. I should not have had that knee jerk reaction. Again, on the show, we always want to set the record straight. Oh, they sure do. Some good advice there. Life advice generally for folks. I shouldn't have been listening to the crowd and shouldn't have had the knee jerk reaction. You know, in America, there is a real issue we have right now with migration flows at the southern border, um, both in terms of what danger and uncertainty it presents for the people that are showing up there. And also the, the, the sort of strain it puts on various social systems here in New York and Denver and Chicago and a whole bunch of other places. It, it, it is a real thing. And there's lots of folks working very hard to deal with it. And then there's the disgusting garbage that is being pumped out by Fox and other parts of the Rupert Murdoch empire, like the New York Post. Just the vilest, most dehumanizing, disgusting filth you can imagine. Do you remember the nationwide shoplifting panic that turned out to be completely belied by the statistics? 
or the splashy stories of a migrant caravan apocalypse that never came. Please, remember those every time you hear a viral story in a city that, by the way, where crime has dropped significantly last year during the migrant surge. When you hear one of those viral stories, I am urging everyone, in the words of Curtis Lewa, don't have a knee-jerk reaction. Wait for a bit for the truth to emerge. You say open borders doesn't mean a rush to migrate because the running assumption among a lot of Americans is that everybody wants to be in America, everyone around the world, all 9 billion people. And then if you just gave everyone a green card and a plane ticket, that tomorrow you'd have all 9 billion people on the planet here within the borders of the United States, and we'd have social collapse immediately. You've actually got some interesting research on this. To me, that never scanned because most people like the place that they grew up. It's where they're comfortable. It's where their family is. It's where their friends are. It's what they know. But you've dug in a little deeper on that. So what what did you find on this question of mass migration being sparked by an open border policy? Well, I want to reframe two things here really quick. One is when people talk open borders, I don't think folks mean a green card necessarily right away or a plane ticket. And the reason I'm, I'm harping on that for a second is because there's been so many claims about current asylum seekers getting gift cards, getting free plane tickets. And that's just not the case. Um, $5,000 is one of the, one of the myths kind of circulating on the right. Just get a, you get that you just get like a card with $5,000 right. on Completely it. false. I, I, I'm in Arizona. We have um, one of our Senate candidates here, Mark Lamb, who claims to have knowledge of this happening. And um, it's just not true. That, that's, that's, that's not happening. No one is getting plane tickets or vouchers for anything um, who are crossing the border. But the other reframe I want to do is something that I think a lot of folks in the United States see this as an issue that affects uniquely the United States. And the current migration problem, and, and I agree that it's a problem, is not a United States problem. It's not an American problem. It's a regional problem and it's a global problem. And if you if you think about it in just where people are going currently, a lot of people are coming to the United States. A lot of people have always come to the United States. Um, we can get into some numbers on that in a second. I think that's really important work to do as well. But look at, for example, the number of Venezuelans and the number of Nicaraguans who have resettled in neighboring countries compared to how many have come to the United States. There are approaching 3 million Venezuelans in Colombia right now. And over the past 20 some years, the number of Venezuelans who have come to the United States hasn't even topped 1 million. Nicaraguans are largely resettling or maybe temporarily resettling in neighboring Costa Rica. Some of them are coming up through Central America, Mexico, and, and trying to get into the United States as well. There's been a parole program, but people generally stay close to their home countries. This is the same for Africa as well. There's a number of African states who have become receiving countries as you know the term of art for in immigration speak gabon which is a country probably a lot of people never think of and couldn't necessarily point to on a map has been an enormous receiving country for a lot of african refugees right now um same with uganda for, for people from other different countries in africa turkey as well for syrians um has welcomed far far more people 
than some of the neighboring states in Europe that have complained and cried foul for supposedly being overrun. So I think just if you, if you consider where people are going, um, they typically don't want to go far. And th- there have been a number of examples of when the border has been effectively open. You mentioned that in the, like the 19th century. There was a lot of immigration in the 19th century of the United States. Something like 50 million Europeans went from different countries in Europe to the United States over a 100-year period, ending in the, the late 19th century. But there are a number of other examples where, you know, I think Puerto Rico is, is, is a telling case. Puerto Ricans can move freely. They're U.S. citizens. They can move to New York, to Miami, to wherever they want to go. And plenty of them have, but not all of them have. And you can look at even some of like the economic differences between the island and different parts of the United States. You think, well, we have higher wages here. We have all these other things that people think would attract migrants and sometimes does, but it doesn't empty out and hasn't emptied out Puerto Rico. And you can go case by case and see that people want to stay where they are. If they can, they will. And and if they can't, they'll often go to the next easiest place to get to. Of course, there are exceptions to this. And a lot of those exceptions are due to prior relationships. But if you, if you look at the history of colonialism, a lot of the states who have gone in and meddled with these so-called developing nations are now receiving citizens of those same countries where the empires have destabilized, have engaged in conquest, have tried to exploit as much as possible. So there is a connection. And and so some people will go further than their neighboring states, but it's not inevitability. Migration costs money. It's expensive. And opening the gates doesn't necessarily mean people are going to rush because it costs a lot, both monetarily and emotionally and professionally. Um, They're going to leave behind everything they knew. And folks don't tend to do that. All right. So to push back on that a little bit, uh, you are seeing record numbers of migrants approaching uh, the U.S. border over the last months and year plus. So what does that tell us about how much kind of pressure there is on outward migration and what we might see if you actually did just fully say, you know what, come on in? Well, I think it's too early to say if this is just another peak and we're going to drop down into a valley in terms of numbers of migration, or if this is going to be necessarily a steady upward trend. If you look at the big picture, there are right now about 270 million international migrants. Um, That was based on last year's count by the UN. That's about 3.5% of the global population. That number, 3.5%, has held steady for about 100 years. If you look at forced migration, so people who aren't just migrating for economic or family reasons, but are actually forced out of the country, the count topped 110 million last year. And that too is is about the average of the, the global population. It's a little bit hard to count because the just tabulations weren't done as thoroughly in you know the mid last century when we started, when we newly defined what a refugee was. I'm going to give you another number, and then I, I, want, I want to get into that, uh, what this means about the outward pressures of migration. The United States, too, there are there's a little bit less than 15% of all people living in the country are foreign-born. 
And that number is almost identical to what it was 100 years ago. So, you know, there's a number of things to think through that, that might imply that these numbers are going to increase. I mean, climate change is the biggest one of them. Um, large parts of the world are becoming less habitable because of all the reasons we know and increasingly strong storms, droughts, floods, heat, etc. So we might be in a new era, but I think it's so far a little bit too early to tell. Going back to that, you know, 100-year perspective, and then you can go further than that too. There's something that is true here is that humans are moving and humans have historically moved. That is how humans have always been. And that has been true before the rise of nation states. That has been true before the rise of empires. So I think the question is not how to stop migration, but how do we respond to migration? We've just heard clips today, starting with the readout looking at the politics that derailed the proposed immigration bill. The majority report looked at the Democrats' move to the right on immigration. The damage report highlighted the Republican who's actually mad at his own party. Today Explained explained the Texas border stunt. The Brian Lehrer Show discussed the GOP attempt to impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security, which, just before publishing this episode, they succeeded in doing. All In With Chris Hayes highlighted the danger of Fox News' hateful framing on immigration, and Deconstructed made the case for open borders. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Amicus, diving deeper on the legal ramifications of Texas' border stunt. We are required as a country, the United States is required to speak with one voice, one set of laws, and SB4 is challenging that very aggressively. And Governor Abbott is implementing these unconstitutional hostile takeovers of immigration law in the form of SB4. And Deconstructed continued the discussion about the nature of humans to move and the inequality of the rich already having the privilege of free movement around the world. Some people are allowed to do and have the freedoms that others do not. That That is the way that the global border system works right now. Right. Based on where they're born or their ethnicity. We understand that as apartheid inside the borders of a country like South Africa. But when we stretch it out to the entire globe, we say that's just how it is. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. Now to wrap up, I want to tie together a couple of stories that really highlight the structural dysfunction of our democracy right now. First, I'll start with the unsurprising story. I'll take it as granted that you already heard about the migrant busing story where asylum seekers were put on buses and planes from Texas to be driven to cities run by Democrats as a craven political move that used real-life human beings as political pawns to score points. It was inhumane, gross, and probably illegal human trafficking because lies were told to some people to get them on those buses. But the seed of truth underneath that policy was that people coming across the border who are processed through our underfunded and understaffed system who then need somewhere to go to wait for their court dates 
need to be moved away from border towns because it's completely unreasonable to expect the border region to absorb all of those people alone. So way down underneath all the political games and treating humans like playthings, that was the primary argument. The logistical burden of processing asylum seekers should be spread across the country. And I completely agree. And so do immigration advocates working at NGOs dedicated to helping migrants once they've entered the country. The woman who runs the Valverde Border Humanitarian Coalition was working with the state of Texas on the logistics of coordinating services for the migrants at their destination cities. The state would organize the bus rides, give that information to Tiffany Burrow of the Valverde Border Humanitarian Coalition, who would in turn coordinate with NGOs in the destination cities so that there could be people waiting to receive the buses and give guidance to the migrants when they arrived. The people working at these NGOs believe in the need for the busing program. They're not just there to mitigate harm. They see it as necessary to relieve pressure from border communities. However, the story I'm actually highlighting is that after Texas and these NGOs had been working in partnership for a time, Texas suddenly decided to stop providing the bus route information that allowed the advocates to organize logistical support. No details or reasons were given other than that they just sort of felt like they didn't need to. Of course, the result was to maximize chaos at the destination cities, which was very likely the point. The whole policy, though necessary, has always been conducted in a way to maximize the spectacle of it, not to be an example of good governance or policy or even to help people. Democratic officials have criticized the busing policy, but less about the existence of the policy and more for Texas Governor Abbott's refusal to coordinate with other governors and mayors in the process. And we know why. There is a political motivation that rewards more political clout to those who make the other party look bad than to those who govern well. Abbott is definitely seen more favorably in the eyes of Texas Republicans because of his cartoonishly cruel busing policy intended to make Democrats look bad than he would if he'd devised a well-organized, well-coordinated policy that accomplished the goals of spreading the logistical burden of incoming migrants, but without all the drama. I will say one thing for Abbott's stunt, though. He also made clear that it was intended to bring attention to the lack of federal support for the logistics of dealing with the influx of migrants, and it did succeed at that. In fact, I was surprised to learn that there wasn't already a system in place to transport migrants around the country because, of course, we need something like that. But the perverse incentives to not enact reasonable, effective policy don't just flow in one direction. As reported by CBS, federal officials considered setting up just such a federally coordinated effort that would transport migrants from the border around the country so they could be processed in their destination cities, easing the strain at the border. The system would work with organizations in those cities to ensure that migrants could be accommodated and worked with the cities directly, unlike Texas's busing effort, of course. Now, reading from the CBS article, quote, 
but the proposal was blocked by the White House due to concerns about the political optics of the federal government transporting migrants across the U.S. and objections from some of the cities asked to take part in the program, according to three current and former U.S. officials. The White House officials said the plan is no longer under consideration. A former Biden administration immigration official said the interior processing plan would have distributed migrants and resources more proportionally across the U.S. in an orderly way. Interior processing capacity would have provided access to additional resources and taken pressure off many cities. The White House rejected those plans in 2021 and 2022 due to politics and the requirement that the White House would need to own the coordination, the former official said, end quote. In short, the fear that it would look bad to attempt to create a well-organized, thoughtful policy to manage the influx of border crossings stopped the effort entirely. And I suspect that they feared it would look bad regardless of whether it went well or poorly. If it went well, the GOP would frame it as Biden actively helping migrants who are probably mostly criminals and terrorists so that they could vote for Democrats. And then if it went badly, then it would just be seen as more evidence that the government doesn't work. So the idea was scrapped. On the bigger picture, we obviously need to get back to a politics where politicians are not disincentivized from attempting to create good policy. That's sort of the core of democratic governance. Without it, we are totally screwed. On the smaller picture, looking at immigration specifically, here's my proposal. We obviously need a coordinated effort to manage immigration because it is going to happen whether we are organized or not. So we'd better get organized. And the very core of that effort needs to be fairness. No ad hoc system like Texas is running could ever be fair or just, so the federal government needs to step in. The CBS article mentioned that some cities might complain about being asked to help support the effort, and to them, I would invoke the promise of fairness. No city should be asked to do more than their fair share, and therefore, every city needs to do what they can to help spread the effort. Also, I am sick to death of the right claiming a monopoly on patriotism, and to any who criticize an effort to create a well-organized immigration system, I say, e pluribus unum, from many, one. It was our unofficial motto from the very beginning until the godless communist scared us into adopting In God We Trust as our official motto back in the 50s. But e pluribus unum is still on our money, and it still goes deeper to the heart of what the U.S. is supposed to be about than any other option. And the best thing about it is how nicely it scales. Originally, it just referred to the coming together of the original 13 colonies but it seamlessly scaled to include every additional state that was added. It could just as easily have been referring to the origin countries of everyone who's ever migrated to this land and will continue to encompass everyone who comes from abroad and become an American citizen. But most importantly for our current politics, it should be a reminder of the necessity for all parts of the country to work together when facing issues that affect us all. There's a recent headline in the LA Times, quote, Half of Republicans say California isn't really American, end quote. 
Which isn't surprising, considering the rhetoric coming from Trump and his MAGA supporters and other Republicans who may or may not be following reluctantly but are following all the same. Their whole game plan is to do to Democrats writ large what they have done to every group they've decided to target based on race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, or gender identity throughout the ages. They are attempting to frame anyone who doesn't agree with them as fundamentally un-American. And, for those willing to use the more extreme rhetoric which Trump has recently embraced, not fully human. And fighting back against that with, no, you're the one being un-American, is never going to work. The left needs to define a positive vision of functional government and inclusive democracy. We've never been a homogenous country full of people who get along well with each other, and we're not about to start now. But we have gotten to an extremely bad divide, even in a history full of pretty bad divides. And I think the path back to sanity might start with a full-throated embrace of one of our oldest shared beliefs. We may not agree on much other than that we have grudgingly agreed to coexist because we recognize we are stronger and better off working together than going it alone. E pluribus unum. Out of many, one. And besides, immigrants are good for the economy and tax base, so even if you don't care about treating them like humans, you can think of immigrants as a source of a future tax base to help pay down the national debt or, you know, whatever pet economic concern you have. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave a voicemail or send us a text at 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and Ben, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships. You can join them by signing up today at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. You'll find that link in the show notes along with a link to join our Discord community where you can also continue the discussion. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.